0: Hello, I'm Barbara Bander, and this is The Model Black, a podcast about equity at work. This podcast series aims to create a space where we can have open and positive conversations around race and difference in the world of work. My ultimate goal is to create more inclusive and equitable workplaces recognizing as we do that achieving equity at work is very much a journey and not a destination. During this podcast series, we're gonna have conversations with experts from across the globe, exploring what we can all do to make our workplaces more equitable. I'm delighted today to have the opportunity to talk to Amanda Flax. Amanda is the HR lead for Lindum Group, an employee and family owned construction business. Amanda has had over 20 years experience in the field of HR with a particular focus around leadership development, employee engagement and training. And for the last 10 years, she specialized in the area of equity, diversity and inclusion. Amanda previously worked in the NHS, local government and the railway industry. And she's worked with organizations around a whole range of topics linked to diversity, belonging and inclusion in the workplace. And she has a particular interest in and focus on culture and dynamics. So a very warm welcome to you, Amanda. Great to be talking to you today. Lovely to be here, Barbara. Thank you for inviting me. So Amanda, when we had our kind of pre-chat, ahead of recording, I was fascinated to hear how you got into the field of HR and EDI more specifically. It would be great if you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up here.
1: So I actually wasn't supposed to work into HR. I was supposed to be cracker. For those of you over 45 that can remember an old TV show with Robbie Coltrane, I'd meant to focus around being an occupational forensic psychologist, but actually in the end decided having looked at the field and going to Hull prison on a day trip, that perhaps wasn't my field. And I'd perhaps focused more on HR. I went across to America and I lived in New York for a couple of years. And when I was over there, I really learned about culture, about difference, about belonging and more specifically about not quite fitting in. And when I came back from the US, I decided to focus more on the HR field, went into recruitment, um, casework, and then over the years moved slowly towards diversity and inclusion, which is something that I have a particular interest in, because um, not only did I have the background of living in a different country and realising that I was very much a product of my upbringing – but also I have friends that are deaf and I sign and I'd realised that perhaps society has some rules for some people and some rules for others. And from an HR field, that's particularly interesting.
0: So you said you had almost a kind of awakening when you were in the US. Do you want to say something more about that? What happened? Was there a particular day that you had an experience or was it a more gradual evolution?
1: I think when you first move to a country that still speaks the same language on the surface, you tend to think there's very little cultural difference. And then after you've been there a few months, you realise that your popular references are different, the TV programmes that you refer to, the music you listen to, how you think, your values and belief systems are certainly very embedded from where you've grown up. And prior to that, I'd been at university and I'd spent three years living with a friend that was originally from Ghana. And I think seeing her experiences of moving to a different country and trying to assimilate, I hadn't truly understood the differences until I was that person on the outside looking in. And then suddenly all the things that she said to me over the years started to resonate because you realise that in fact there are more differences than you realise. When you start having a conversation with somebody and you refer to something that you think everybody will get and they look at you a little bit like, I don't really understand what you're talking about. So It's been something that over a number of years, I've probably even gravitated towards people that are a little bit different, have different experiences, because I love learning. And I love when someone says, I don't agree with you. I think that's a great place to start a conversation, not a great place to finish it.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, Amanda, and great to hear. And as you know, I have a particular interest in this idea and area of lived experience, so you had a lived experience that gave you a different perspective on the world and I guess what I'm hearing is that you were much more able to empathise with and understand the experience of others who felt that perhaps they were outside of the majority, whatever that looked like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I moved to the US, it was one of those things where religions very different, relationships are very different The rules around the workplace are very different. So sense of humour for certain is definitely one that I could resonate with. I can remember getting pulled in by HR, which is ironic. I made it my field afterwards. And I had this lovely um, American woman sit me down and go, Amanda, I've got a slight concern. We've had a few comments made about the fact that over time you appear to be getting slightly more relaxed with people, slightly more jokey. And then you've kind of pushed into being, upon occasion, a little bit too far. Now, I am British, so therefore my Approaches. You start off being extremely polite to people. And over time, as you get to know them, you relax a little bit. You start making jokes and you sort of build a rapport that way. Now, Americans are a little bit different. What I didn't understand is that they start off quite brusque dismissive and as they like you more, they get friendlier. So there was this beautiful time when I got slightly ruder and they got slightly friendlier that we kind of really engaged and connected with each other. The problem is, is that having been raised in a normal working class family up north, you kind of take the joke and you go with it. So I kept going and it wasn't until someone explained to me that isn't the culture, that isn't the way we do things in America, that I sort of sat back and thought, wow, the rules of engagement are a little bit different and I had to learn the hard way.
0: Yes. So you learned about that in the US. You came back to the UK and continued to develop your career in HR. Or was that the switch
1: that you made at that time? Tell me a little bit more about how that happened. So I initially went to get qualified as an occupational psychologist because I was particularly interested in how people act in the workplace. It was something around thinking about relationships, but also things like bullying, disengagement, how people have different perspectives in the workplace and how that can impact dynamics. But then having done that as a qualification, I decided that actually I wanted more the practical side of things. I actually wanted to be in the workplace and build those relationships. So at that point, I moved into the NHS and I moved into HR there, focusing on recruitment and particularly around recruiting doctors around the Midlands. So you worked in the NHS,
0: then you moved into local government. So at what point did you develop this interest in the whole kind of equity, diversity and inclusion field? When exactly did this happen?
1: So I'd been working in HR for around 10 years. And by that point, I'd probably done most of the jobs in HR that you could do. And I met a friend who said that she was going to undertake a sign language course. And I thought, oh, I haven't got that skill. I think I'll pop along with her. And it was through meeting her and through working a lot with the deaf community for a number of years that I started to get a very clear perspective on how life rather looks back at you. We always talk about we see life through our own lens. I think what people don't understand is that the world looks back at you and it makes judgments on you and it pigeonholes you. And that then inevitably has an impact on you as a person. And when I started to see that from a disability perspective, and I'd obviously had my experiences living abroad from a cultural perspective, I'd lived for a number of years from a person that had been from a different country and from a different different culture, a different heritage. These things will start to collide and start to make you realise that my experience was my experience. And that's as a small, round, middle-aged white woman. And I've pretty much got that down. I'm not sure what it's like to be a man. I don't know what it's like to be from a different ethnicity or heritage. I don't know what it's like to have certain disabilities. And I think that really piqued my interest into understanding the impacts that had in the workplace, not only for opportunities, but even to attracting people to certain jobs and the self-limiting behaviours that we have to, I can't apply for that, I'm not going to succeed at that, and the impact that therefore has on not only the business, but the individual themselves. Right. So you had a
0: sense of the impact that it had. You've then done this sign language course. You're understanding the experience, as we've said, of people who are different from yourself. And then you start to get involved in actually making change happen in the organisation. So how did you make that shift to actually bringing about new initiatives in the organisation that you worked in? was this a a slow process?
1: Slowly. I think that big change in large organisations is practically impossible. I think the first thing I did was speak to leadership and talk about the impact that excluding some people from even applying for jobs was having upon the diversity of the business. And that's quite hard when you're in Derbyshire. It's a predominantly white area. There are areas of certain affluence Um, There are some areas where socioeconomic backgrounds are variable, but it's certainly predominantly a middle-class area. And I started off talking to leadership about different experiences that people had. I deliberately brought along people that had different experiences of working with the council and working with different businesses within that area. And then I started working with network groups. And that's the first time I think I truly got to get into the nuts and bolts of difference in the workplace. Because you see surface level quite clearly. I think what you don't see are the embedded underneath problems that sit within a person that actually takes years and years and years to process and can actually really be a self-limiting experience. So I started to work with leadership. I work with network groups. I then made the network groups consider working with local charities so they could give back. And that brought a whole different dynamic of actually bringing in charities into our business so that leadership could see the impact that the work was having, not only internally to the business, but to local communities. And then I also got us to work with the police, the fire service, the local college, the local university, and it became a real network of change to use each other, to support each other, to learn from each other about best practice, best approaches across a whole range of sectors. And it really gave me the encouragement to continue sort of having those discussions, which sometimes can be very awkward. There's nothing easy about discussing difference. It often makes people hold the mirror and they don't necessarily like that. And I think we can all resonate with that time that we realized we didn't quite do the right thing. And I think that organisations absolutely can do the right thing. And it should be at forefront of all of their strategic planning. It should be at the forefront of all their decision making. And I think to do that, you need very enthusiastic, very passionate people that truly believe in what they're doing. And luckily, that's what I had the opportunity to do when I worked at the council. Great. That's fascinating. So then tell me something about
0: some of the the very specific experiences that you had. Because I'm hearing about what you did, I'm hearing about the changes that you made. Are there any things that kind of stand out in your mind? Any particular days, any specific experiences when you thought, yeah, I've made a difference here, or that was an interesting conversation that switched something. Are there any specific examples like that that you want to share with us?
1: There are two particular instances that really resonate in my mind. The first was working with a range of local community groups that were focusing on race in the Chesterfield area and in Derby City Centre. And it was absolutely remarkable to sit down with people that were leaders in their field professionally and yet still felt that within their own local communities, they didn't have a voice that they were still the minority, that they still had to diminish themselves to be accepted, that they almost had to hide their success to be warranted, to be invited into a conversation. And I remember them coming along to a day that the council had arranged where all of these groups got together. And traditionally, these groups hadn't really had the space and time to share a day, really celebrating all the different success and the different achievements that they had made as individual groups. And it was a day, actually, I had um, a speaker come to the council. It was Professor Beckford. And he came along and he did a talk around the of education and how different bits of history have been written out of the narrative. And I remember the groups all sitting there and they were all from very different backgrounds. We had the Afro-Caribbean group, we had a Ghanaian group, we had a Ukrainian group, we had Pakistani groups, all different um, ethnicities, backgrounds and cultures. And they all sat there and listened to the shared narrative of their history being removed. But I also remember looking around the room and seeing the white people in that room sit there in complete shock and horror that something that plainly is in sight, they hadn't seen. And the groups then really supported the white people in the group to kind of make that journey and do it in a safe way. And I will never forget that because I had people come up to me before go, I never thought that these things happened. I never realized what part of the system I was still a member of. And I will never forget that people that day truly left that building different than when they'd entered it. Another day I really remember was working with the deaf community and we had a meeting for all the people that were working on a particular project with the council around education. So is quite a unique council in that it has a number of enhanced resource units where deaf children can be integrated with hearing children. Now there's lots of politics around this and I understand that, but it's around parental choice. And we were trying to offer an opportunity for those parents and those families to come together and discuss what it's like to be profoundly deaf, to be a sign language user, and actually still get a mainstream education. And I remember there must have been 200 people in the room, all signing, and it was so noisy, but not a word was being spoken. And it was full of laughter and full of humour and full of understanding. And I had a number of councillors come to me after that meeting and go, today's the first day I've really understood the impact of the decisions that I make in a council room. The actual impact that that then has leaving this building onto the communities around us and the children of our future. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad I've been a part of actually allowing that person to understand that when you sit down in an office of position of power that actually does have a major impact to people on the streets.
0: So what I'm hearing from you, Amanda, are two really excellent examples of where you've seen real change happen, more or less in front of your eyes. That's what I'm hearing and I guess those are quite magic moments, aren't they? In your experience, in your
1: working life, They are, and I'll tell you why they're particularly resonant. When you work in a training field, you often prepare particular slide decks. You sit down and you think of what you're trying to communicate, and it tends to be somewhat formulaic. And what you spoke of earlier, which is lived experience, when people really connect to each other, that's when real change happens. And that connection only comes from being real from actually sharing the good and the bad and being truly honest and authentic about how you feel. And those two experiences were people just bringing in their authentic selves and just saying, this is my experience without judgment, without expectation. And actually just allowing people to sit with that and understand it and understand their affiliative background to that. So as a white person, would I have truly understood all of those different ethnicities, those different cultures, that heritage? No, I've had to educate myself but that's been at the grace of people allowing me to sit down with them and understand their experiences being different from mine so it's not something that i own it's not my narrative but i absolutely take responsibility for educating myself and understanding other people's experiences and so to be able to share that with others and see that same recognition in their faces was beautiful because it wasn't meant to be a training session it was just meant to be a celebration right yes amanda and you are Well, you're clearly a white
0: woman and you're working in this area, this EGI area, an area where race, particularly in recent years, it's become a a very big discussion point. What's that been like for you? Um,
1: I'm actually okay discussing race because I understand that it's not my narrative. I don't try and own it. I don't think that's right for white people to own someone else's story and their, their back history. What I do think is that lots of other white people feel very, very uncomfortable discussing race. I understand why. It's not a comfortable conversation to recognise that a system we live with today is at the benefit of things that have happened in the past that aren't fair, that are abusive, that aren't something that we should celebrate. And yet where we sit today is a direct result of those behaviours. And I think lots of white people sit there and they go, well i can't change the past i can't have an impact on that so i don't think that it's my narrative i don't think it's in my power to have those conversations well for me as a white person i think it's absolutely my place to say my life is is through a white person's lens That does not mean that I can't try and understand and absolutely adjust my behavior where required to really understand someone else's background. And if I don't understand it, at least ask questions. I really believe in curiosity. I think the problem is these days, white people are very, very scared of being curious. I think they're worried about saying the wrong words, saying the wrong thing, making mistakes, being labeled as something. And, you know, it's a real pity. Because all it's about is connection. It's about really understanding someone else's experiences and just really sitting with it. And that's absolutely fine to say, I don't get it. I don't understand that. But let's be curious. Let's ask questions. Let's try and understand a person and their difference. Thank you for that response,
0: Amanda, because I asked that question because, as you probably know, I've spoken to a lot of Black people who are working in this field, and they often complain that they've come up against a kind of wall. And I wonder whether there's some benefit, if I could even call it that, in actually being a white person in this field. Is there a certain connection that you feel that you can make that perhaps allows people to open up?
1: I've had very honest conversations with people, and perhaps that is because I am white, whether it's because also I work in HR and they feel too scared to say, no, I don't know about that. But I think that when someone looks like you and sounds like you and thinks like you, that can be a bad thing. But I think when it comes to discussing the same barriers, it can be a positive because people go, well, actually, you get it. You're white. You understand where I'm feeling awkward. Do I think it's a benefit to be white working around any area of diversity and inclusion? It can be. I think it can also make people say, well, how would you know? It's not your experience, it's it's not your heritage, it's not your culture. And they're absolutely right to pull me up on that. I can't own something that I'm physically not. That's not my story here. All I want to do is to allow people to understand that their experience is through their lens. And you can have the same experience with two people standing side by side and what they take away is very, very different because of who and what they are. And that understanding
0: then, that, that kind of way of seeing the world, Amanda. How have you brought that then inside the organisations that you've worked with? So, for example, you know, as, you've been, as we've been talking, I understand that you did a lot of work in the railway industry. So how have you brought those ideas, that understanding into the work that you did there, for example?
1: So we've tried a number of things. The first thing I did was to focus on leadership and I brought all of the leaders across a number of rail organisations together into one session. And I brought a footballer that I, I knew to come in and talk to him about his experiences around race. Now, the reason I selected him was because he'd been very successful. He'd really managed to break through the ceiling and be someone that people respected and saw as a success. And so I thought, with these leaders that had a very similar socioeconomic background, there might be some some level of connection there, even if race wasn't that connection. And it definitely raised lots of questions. And afterwards, I had so many emails and phone calls and discussions with people saying, I had never realized, the barriers that existed and how much adjustment Black people had to make to be seen to fit into the narrative of, well, you're allowed to be successful because you have these characteristics. And this leader spoke of having to, I believe it's what you discuss in your book, a little bit about self-silencing, softening certain aspects, hiding difference, so particularly around alcohol and the drinking culture, he'd had to sort of accept changes around that. And it's things that people had never even thought about. And leaders do have great conversations, I think, now around gender difference. They were discussing the fact that people had parental responsibilities. What they weren't discussing was things around religion. They weren't discussing things around different cultural aspects. And, you know, it was really interesting to see them go through that change. They then wanted me to speak to frontline staff. And this is where actually things got a little bit more difficult, So I met with um, some middle managers in the organisation and we were discussing why is it that in the rail industry there are no black leaders. I mean, there are none in the UK that are black. And the response I got was black people don't like trains. Mm. Yes. So to which I kind of stopped what I was saying and I I had a slide deck prepared and I actually just stopped and said, okay, I'm just going to stop this right here. Let's just talk. Why do you believe that? Now, in that room, there was one black man and his head was down. He didn't look up throughout the entire hour and a half discussion. He self-silenced. And we all sat there and discussed all these different things about barriers and experiences and judgments and stereotypes. And I would say out of those 50 people in that room, one or two, perhaps by the end of it, started to understand that perhaps they were seeing life through their lens. It wasn't until afterwards, and that's where something I think in your book where you wrote about people saying, oh, can I just have a word afterwards? There was probably four or five people that came up to me and it was outside the building, outside of eye shot and earshot of any of their colleagues. They said, thank you. Thank you for raising that. Thank you. I'm married to someone from a different ethnicity and I've never been able to tell anybody. Thank you for raising that. I've never had to sort of had the courage to do it myself and you've raised it and I really appreciate it and I had the same discussion with women as well that actually felt that they were being self-silenced and having they were having to soften themselves and change themselves into this version of themselves that fitted into the wider group and you know it's when you see that that people actually are too scared to have honest conversations with colleagues that you realize that, yeah, leadership might be getting there. They might actively be encouraging you to go and talk to staff. Some staff are really, really wanting to get engaged. They really believe in people being their authentic selves in the workplace. And there are others that just don't see it they genuinely don't see racism, sexism, phobias around sexuality. They don't see difference in disability. They just don't see it because as far as they're concerned, they're kind. Therefore, why why is there a problem? We're all just kind, right? Yes. And
0: that's the challenge, isn't it? You've got different groups because what you've explained beautifully is that there are these different responses that you've got from different levels within the organisation. And I really love what you've just said about people coming up and chatting to you afterwards because of what you've done, because what you did do is to make it safer, hopefully safer for them to start to have those conversations after you've left. Because in many cases, it's what happens after you leave the room that matters as well. Isn't it, Amanda? as a kind of HR professional, that really matters to you.
1: Absolutely. I think culture is something that leaders and businesses really need to focus on. And we have to accept that if we have an organisation where there's more than one workplace, you're going to have microcultures, And each experience for those employees will vary so when i talk about working in the rail industry it had depots it had headquarters it has stations and different types of jobs tends to attract different types of people so if we think about engineers you're going to have analytical people if you think about people working in training they're going to be people people not always but generally as a rule so when you have these conversations different approaches need to occur so an approach i would often take is around making it into games so gamification discussions So you sort of roll a dice and you do snakes and ladders and you say, okay, you've landed on this particular date. Well, on that date, we introduced an act around disability. Why was it at that date? And you can see people going, oh, I don't understand why. And a discussion occurs and then you roll it again. It lands on something about race, something about gender. And, you know, you can try and have conversations in different ways. It's difficult to have one approach Where in a HR team, you can say, This is the approach we're going to take to diversity and inclusion. It just doesn't work. You need to take a modular approach. It needs to be an ongoing conversation. You need to instigate cultural change where people feel truly safe to say, I don't agree. I'm not happy. That isn't appreciated. And I think that a really big barrier, one that I definitely have come across in a number of sectors, is the idea that banter isn't bullying. Hmm. Now, they're very, very linked sometimes, but they're not always the same. And it's really, really easy. So anyone listening today, banter is two people who like each other, stepping up to the Ockey and having a laugh. They both know that they are having um, a, a sense of humor. They're not, there's no intention there to hurt each other. And if one person says, I'm done, it immediately stops with respect. Banter is where you target somebody, you have a go at them, they don't have the power to reply, and when they say stop, the other protagonist does not. So anyone saying it's just banter, well, if it's not a friend, if it wasn't with friendly intent, if you didn't immediately stop when they asked you to, it's not banter, you've crossed a line, and people just don't seem to understand the difference.
0: Yes, And I guess explaining things in the way that you've just beautifully expressed them, that's part of the change that you want to see in organisations. So, you know, an understanding of when it isn't banter and what it then requires from them. And do you also talk to people about allyship, if we can call it that, about speaking up, calling out when they see something that isn't banter? about people speaking up in those kinds of environments. To what extent is that something that you've been involved in?
1: Oh, gosh, absolutely. It's definitely, again, I always have the belief that if it's everyone's responsibility, it tends to be no one having accountability. Well, guess what? We are all accountable for the workplaces that we work in. And I'll give you an example where I witnessed someone actually being not confident enough to be an ally. So we've done lots of training around this in many different sectors, and I'm sure every EDI specialist listening to this will go, we've done it all, we understand it all. But let's put it into practice. So I was at a train station, and a train had been cancelled. Now, for those of you that don't work in the rail industry, rail's a bit strange. What happens is if a, a company decides not to run a train, they can just literally dump you at any station in the country, and it might not even be a station where they have any control over that station. So you can get left at a station, and then all the staff go why is this train suddenly disembarking? I've got no idea why. And they have to quickly learn that this train's been stopped. And they've then got to sort out the hundreds of commuters that have just been abandoned partway through their journey. And on this particular day, I was at a station and this occurred. And there was a member of staff and she was approached by two men simultaneously. One was a white man, one was a black man. They were both impeccably dressed, clearly going to a meeting in London, clearly from, you know, very affluent backgrounds. And they behaved Identically, So they were both irate, they were both angry, they were both frustrated, they both had obviously a very clear commitment to getting back to London at a specific time, and they were just trying to say to her, look, you can't just leave us here in the middle of the country, we need to get back to London, how do we get there? Now subsequently I learned they were both from the same organisation, it turned out to be a law firm, and they were both going back to the same meeting the reaction from the member of staff was to physically step back from the black person and say you are threatening me and to start phoning the British transport police who actually are the people that monitor train stations and the behaviour that the black man had done was exactly identical to the white person there was genuinely no difference between them they were both frustrated both professionals and both wanting to continue with their day and Her perspective was one person was more threatening than another. And I saw three members of staff watching this. Two were white and one was from dual heritage, that I know quite well. And I saw the person of dual heritage take a step back. I saw her make an active decision that she didn't want to be the person that made a discussion around race. She just genuinely thought that that was going to cause more issues. And I saw a white person step forward and go, okay. This really isn't a discussion around that. We're not calling the police. Let's just try and get you on your way. And they took over. Now, the two other people stood in silence, and they clearly were both very uncomfortable with the behaviour that they'd seen. They were both equally disagreeing with what the person was doing, but neither felt the confidence to do it. And afterwards, I went to speak to the woman that was of dual heritage, because I know her really well. We sort of have had conversations around race before. And she said, I just didn't want to be that person that was yet again raising someone's behaviour around race. It makes me uncomfortable. It's not my job to educate everybody else. And I think it's about time that the white people in the room stood up a little bit and they accepted that they need to take responsibility for their behaviour. And I'm a big believer in words, create worlds. You know, so if someone says something, it sits with you, it resonates with you. And years later... Any of us listening today can recall that time when we were made to feel the outlier. We were made to feel like we weren't accepted. That shock conversation from that person that we really thought trusted us, had a great relationship with us, and then suddenly they say something that hits you to the core that makes you realise they don't understand you. They don't really respect you. And this was a series of um, incidents that had occurred for this member of staff where they thought, I'm not having that conversation anymore. She'd given up. And it had to be handed across to a white person that hadn't had that constant day in, day out battle that still had some juice in the tank to have that conversation. And so I think that for white people listening today, responsibility does sit with us to continue that conversation, to raise the conversation, to intercede, to be an upstander and actually say I don't accept that and not just leave it to people that are having to have that battle day in day out to be the constant vanguard of that argument or that change. Right so that
0: allyship we can call it allyship we we can call it what we want but it really matters and that's a fantastic example and that's the other thing I think you've raised here you know it's something that when I wrote the book, I call it the jolt. It's the moment where where you recognise that perhaps you're not in the majority, but you're actually very much one of the minority. You're definitely in the minority and you raise it here slightly differently in the sense of somebody saying that you thought they were on the side and suddenly they're not on side. So, How do we make a comment with grace in that moment then, Amanda? What would you suggest that people who are listening in and saying, I'm seeing it happen, but I'm not quite sure how to intercede. I'm not quite sure what to say.
1: So this is a hard one because this is about dynamics, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So in the workplace, if you're talking to a leader, I'd probably approach that differently than if I was talking to a colleague. And again, differently if it was a member of my own team. I think you have to judge the situation. Do I think it's ever appropriate to say nothing in that moment? If it's a leader and you're in the middle of a big meeting, I might pull them aside afterwards to have that discussion because leaders very rarely appreciate being pulled aside in public. But I absolutely believe that you can make comments that aren't directly related to that person and still make your point. So I've sat in meetings before where someone is making a comment without realising they're alienating somebody in the room. And I do believe you can come at it from a different angle and say oh well on a different point there's also this issue here and I don't think that's being covered either and kind of really highlight there's more than one layer to a discussion so I do believe if you're in a position where you have some leadership over a team it is absolutely your responsibility to go that is unacceptable behavior I don't appreciate it and I would be that tough sometimes other times I would say oh can you talk me through that? Because that's not my perspective and I'd like to know more about why you've got to that point. I also believe in saying, oh, it's interesting. I was speaking to somebody the other day and they were saying quite the opposite. Can you give me some more detail about why you're sort of saying that? I also believe in giving people time to ruminate. So sometimes I have said to people, I'd really like to think about what you've just said. And later on today, I'm going to give you a call and I'd love to chat further. So you're not really giving them much but you're giving them time to step back and think about what they've said. It's really hard. Workplaces are political and sometimes the dynamics of the power of a relationship can certainly impact how comfortable you feel about having that discussion with somebody. What I would say is, if you don't feel confident in the time, that's fine. I'm not sitting here saying we should all be raising flags left, right and centre and entering to arguments. What I do believe though is that we have a responsibility to say to somebody that it really isn't my perspective and I'm uncomfortable. It doesn't make me feel that we are working in an inclusive way. And we do know that businesses that are more inclusive tend to be more successful. And, you know, we think about when we create things like laws, we create laws, not because we're sitting there in a corner somewhere thinking, gosh, I really think we could do with more rules. We create laws because something's gone wrong, because there's an inequity, because there's a problem. And we put safety mechanisms in place to try and redress that balance. And that redressing of the balance needs to happen in conversations too. So we need to create our own rules around us. So when I start with a new team, I almost lay out my, my my ground rules, my expectations of behavior. If you're around me, I expect these things. And you know, if I'm not doing the right things back, I absolutely expect you to knock me back into line too. Because I can stumble over things, I can make mistakes, everyone has prejudice. Everyone can have stereotypes in their heads and we can all sit there at the end of the day and go, look, wow, I totally got that wrong. And that's on me. It's not on them. That's on me. And I need to adjust and I need to change. So I think it's constant re-education, constant checking yourselves and constant reanimation of a discussion to make sure that everyone's definitely traveling in the same direction as you and that you're not being really unclear about how you want to work with people. Good, so some really nice tips there, I think for people who are
0: listening to this podcast, things that they can start to think about doing with their teams and ways that they can really think about actively intervening. So some terrific examples there and some wonderful tips again from you, Amanda. So Amanda, 10 years in this EDI field, and I'm kind of focusing on that area. If I ask you to reflect on it, where have you seen the greatest progress over that period?
1: I think that people are definitely happier having a discussion around sexuality, around gender, around parental responsibility. I think race is definitely lagging behind that. I think that's for sure an area where people are less comfortable I think that leaders are more aware that if employees are happy and content they'll perform better and their businesses will perform better so culture is becoming a larger discussion. I think that when it comes to HR particularly I have noticed in the last few years that when it comes to testing we are making better decisions around the tests that we implement during the recruitment process and we are definitely able to test for things like cultural bias gender bias in testing and realign tests to really be the best example for recruitment rather than just thinking, oh, we've used it for 20 years, we're going to continue using it. But I definitely think that race is something that's lagging behind. I think that other areas of diversity have definitely taken a step forward. And, you know, it's even now, today we're having a discussion around race because we say ethnic minorities. Well, let's be quite clear, ethnic majority in the world, just ethnic minority in the UK so, you know, let's set that narrative straight for a start. White people are the minority in the world. We just happen to be the majority in this country.
0: And thank you for that. And if there was one thing that you would say to somebody listening today, someone who's struggling to have
1: a kind of conversation around race, what would you say to them? Be curious. Ask questions. Don't shy away from it. And there's there's ways of asking questions where... I think the difficulty is sometimes people ask a question and it comes across as judgmental. So, you know, you think about someone saying, oh, how long have you been here? Well, there's an assumption there that because your skin colour is different, that you're actually not born in this country. You know, so they've asked what they think is a curious question, but they've covered it in judgment and assumption and stereotypes. So it's really useful to say to people, I'd love to know more about your background. I'd love to know more about your heritage and culture. I love learning about different cultures, different traditions, different histories that families have. Because I genuinely enjoy thinking, oh, never heard that before. Tell me more. And I think that if we just approach things with more a voice of curiosity, I think that white people have to accept that sometimes we're going to say something, we're going to get it wrong, and you might be corrected. That's okay. It's okay to make a mistake and say, I've learned from that and I'm going to move on from it. It's not done with the purpose of humiliation. It's done with saying, I've had enough of someone saying the wrong thing to me and I really want you to say the right thing. Well, if I came up to you and and misgendered you, if I assumed something about you, you would correct me. And it's no different around race where people are allowed to say, that's not my background. This is, that's not my culture, my heritage. And it's okay to have someone say, I would prefer you say this. It's not done with the intent of humiliation. It's just done so we can have a great conversation and really connect honestly. So I think that we definitely need to get better at being told that's not right and accepting sometimes we're going to get it wrong, myself included. And I've been corrected so many times, but I've learned from it.
0: So Amanda, thank you so much. And just as we're kind of getting to the end of what's been a really great conversation, I just want to share something with you. You know, when I was introduced to you, Amanda, the introduction that I got was, Amanda is this white woman and she's a white woman who talks about race in a way that I haven't heard any other white woman talk about race. That was the introduction I got to you. And that's certainly been my experience today. A real sense that you get it. And I know those words kind of get it, they're kind of words that are, that are thrown about quite a lot in this field. I found it really fascinating to hear all that you've talked about from your perspective. But I want to take a moment now to look forwards. And I know that you're currently in the process of moving roles. So I'm inviting you to think into the future and think about what would happen if I met you again for another Conversations five years from now. What would you like to be different? You know, if I was to ask you, you know, What could we do differently? What would X, Y, and Z be, the things that we could focus on? What would they be for you, Amanda?
1: I would like it to be normal that if we sit down at a table and everyone looks like you, sounds like you, and thinks like you, someone stands up and says, I'm going to find a different table because this isn't the table for me. That's where I want us to be. I want us to have honest conversations without there being the fear of reprisal. I want people to educate themselves and understand that difference is fantastic it's interesting. I don't want to be an automaton where everyone's the same as me. I want someone to sit down and say to me, Amanda, that's your perspective. You've got it wrong. I love that. I love being told that I've missed the point. And often I do. And I would really love other people to have the confidence to go. I just want to be curious. I want to connect. I want to have conversations. I want to understand that the world has a perspective on me. And sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. And I'm going to tell you it's wrong. And to not try and diminish ourselves into the perspective that others have. So I know when I was reading your book, you put down softening. I can definitely resonate with softening myself for other people because, you know, I look a certain way and the assumption is I must have the intellect of a squashed apricot. And, you know, it's about saying, no, I'm not going to diminish myself to make you feel comfortable. I'm going to be my true authentic self. I'm not going to self-silence. I'm going to have the confidence to go, no, I really do have an opinion about that and I'm going to say it. And it's definitely not about me continuing to square. And I, when I saw that in your book, I 100% resonated with squaring, trying to make myself fit into the narrative of leaders must look like this they must behave like this and therefore i must be absolutely the same i have throughout my entire career been a bit of an oddball i have i've told people like people have told me over the years that i'm too kind i'm too nice to work in hr gosh what a judgment on hr you shouldn't have to have kindness balanced against being seen as being professional i can absolutely be a kind person but i know my stuff and i'm going to stick to my guns and i'm going to do what's right So I hope in five years' time, people do the right thing, that they work with integrity. And I hope that they can bring their true authentic selves to the workplace without fear of reprisal.
0: Excellent. Fantastic, Amanda. Thank you very much for having this conversation with me today. Thank you for exchanging your views and also for sharing so much of yourself with the audience today. Amanda Flax, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Model Black. These conversations mean so much to me and they're so important in helping change to happen. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please rate, review, follow, subscribe and share. This helps other people find the show and it means you won't miss a thing. If you'd like to find out more information about my book, The Model Black, you can find more information in the podcast description.